0: Everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we're still talking about how our health, families, career, lives, and then some are all connected with politics, government, communities. If 2020 didn't prove it, then nothing else will. Our healthcare, jobs, support services, housing, businesses, and ability to withstand a global pandemic. All of that is connected to leadership in this country, the laws and policies that govern people. Now, that's what this podcast is about, and that conversation has a lot of voices and perspectives. That's what kept us chatting for five years. I am a nurse, a mother of many, a writer, and a maternal health advocate. I also wrote the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which you can pick up just about everywhere. So let's talk about healthcare a little bit, shall we? The United States is the only developed country that does not have universal healthcare available for all its citizens. We've seen what happens when we tie medical insurance with jobs, and never more clearly than during this pandemic. For decades, we've debated the merits and feasibility of universal healthcare, which would provide good, solid healthcare accessibility to everyone, whether employed married to someone who's employed, the child of someone who's employed, or not. Obviously, that debate has landed on the side of the insurance industry and politicians who say it can't be done. We can't provide health care to everyone. Certainly not, just because access to health care is a human right and every human on Earth needs to see a doctor sometimes. But here we are. We are struggling to keep our healthcare system afloat during the biggest public health crisis our country has seen in generations. And what is coming out of it is this the United States is operating a brand new universal healthcare system. And it's been on the news nonstop for months the mass vaccination program that's happening all over the country. Vaccinations are free, they're healthcare, and the government is paying for them for everyone regardless of insurance status. People are getting their shots by the millions every day at no charge because public health is essential. I hate that it takes a pandemic and hundreds of thousands of deaths for people to really see the consequences of a healthcare for profit industry that only provides access to those who meet set criteria, namely those having a job or those who qualify for Medicaid and state provided insurance problem with that is that it doesn't cover everyone or everything either. There are huge gaps and people have been suffering for years. So as we watch the numbers rise for vaccines given and the numbers drop for lives lost, we can look to a successful, free, public, and universal healthcare system and we can be grateful. What else is going on? There's ongoing talk about how the The U.S. has some pretty awful maternal health statistics with more mothers dying or experiencing serious health complications from pregnancy-related conditions more than dozens of other countries. And the situation is worse in some parts of the United States than others. A big part of that has to do with lack of access to health care and health care providers. In many parts of the country, there's a severe lack of maternal health providers to meet community needs. There aren't enough doctors, midwives, nurses to provide good prenatal and postpartum care. And what happens is women fall through the cracks. That's a numbers problem. But there's also a culture problem. There's a severe lack of health care providers who come from the communities they serve. And this ends up all too often in miscommunications and misunderstandings, missed signs and symptoms and misdiagnosis. And too often it results in a patient's poor outcome. Now, countless studies have shown that by expanding the midwifery workforce and utilizing midwives at the top of their professional abilities, that would go a long way towards solving these problems. Both of those problems, the numbers problem and the culture problem. And yet, there are too many restrictions in place and too much ignorance about what midwives do, and why they oftentimes provide the best maternal health care. So today, we're going to talk about some of those restrictions and about ways to bust past them so we can serve women better. Let's take a real quick break, and then we'll get right back to talk with this week's guests. Okay, we are back and ready to get our guests on the line. Demetrius Smith is a family nurse practitioner and certified nurse midwife. Claire Daniel is an American Studies scholar and administrative assistant professor of women's leadership at Tulane University's Newcomb Institute. They're both members of the New Orleans Maternal Health Coalition. Let's get them on the line. Hey there, Demetrius and Claire, it's Jeannie. How are you?
1: doing well doing well how are you today
0: i'm doing really well claire how are you
1: yeah i'm also doing well
0: glad to be chatting with you yeah yeah so i like to start things off by just finding out where in the world you are are you both in new orleans
1: yes yes new orleans the greatest place to be (laughs) is it okay
0: (laughs) i've never been there it's on my list
1: but well, you definitely have to come. You'll have plenty of food and plenty of fun. <laughs> I like both those things. Yeah. Claire, <laughs>
0: you also? You're in New Orleans? Yes. Yep. I'm in the Algiers neighborhood in New Orleans. All right. All right. I always I know I don't say it correctly because when I speak with people who are from your fair city, um, <laughs> you pronounce it differently. And I'm I'm sure I got it wrong. <laughs> how do you how do you say? How do you How do you pronounce
1: it? New Orleans? Well, see, I didn't get it wrong. Yeah, I think...
0: Go ahead.
2: Different people pronounce it differently, I think, even amongst those who are from here, which I am not. So, yeah, Yeah, I also say New Orleans.
0: I have gotten so much teasing about the way that I say it, and it (laughs) sounds like I'm saying it fine. I want to tell people to leave me alone.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. It sounds fine to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm in Portland, Oregon. It's pretty easy to say. (laughs) Well, let's get started with a really hard question. And Claire, I will start with you. Who are you and what do you do?
2: Okay. Well, I am an administrative assistant professor at Newcomb Institute of Tulane University. And so I do a wide variety of things. Some of which are really more faculty esque. I do research and I teach um, around reproductive, the the topics of reproductive politics and media studies. Um, And then the other aspect of my job is program administration. And so I do a lot of um, student programming with um, undergraduates who are interested in reproductive rights, health, and justice. And that sort of The combination of those two things sort of took me into um, what I think we're gonna be talking about today, which is the work that I do with the New Orleans Maternal and Child Health Coalition, which Mm -hmm. is a group of um, concerned individuals and researchers and clinicians and community organizations, all of which are interested in working toward improving birth outcomes in New Orleans and Louisiana more broadly by centering the experiences of black birthing people. And so I've been one of the co-conveners of that coalition since its inception, which was in 2018. Um, And in doing that, I sort of get to get undergraduates involved in that work. And then also there's some like research projects that um, have come out of it. And so it really combines a lot of the aspects of my job really nicely. so I'm excited to talk to you about it today.
0: And when you're not doing really um, high quality academic work, what do you do? What's your thing?
2: Mm.
0: Oh, um, she has to think about it. Ooh. Yeah.
2: Well, A-M-O. I am a mom, so oh, I yeah. have one son. He's nine. So you had um, to think about it. <laughs> yeah. So I've been going to a lot of baseball games lately, and you know, there's a lot of um, piano practicing that happens in my life. And we also recently got a dog. So oh. a lot of dog walking and trying. Oh. I've never had a dog before. So oh. trying to figure out what what a dog owner is supposed to do. <laughs> in addition to just like enjoying the dog as a new member of the family, like trying to make sure we're, we're raising a good dog, you know? Oh, my God.
0: We could talk about dogs through this entire yes. episode. Really, we could talk about dogs the entire episode, and I'd like to, but I also want to ask Demetrius the hard question. Who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, thank you guys for for chatting with me today as well. So I'm Demetrius Smith. I'm a wife and a mom. I'm a homeschool principal by default um, (laughs) due to COVID right now. Um, So I have three kiddos in homeschool. So I am in seventh grade, fourth grade, and first grade all over again. And it's really ironic that it seems like my first grader is doing geometry. I was like, first grade, we're really doing geometry. <laughs> uh, but outside of that hard stuff, uh, I am a nurse practitioner, a family nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. Um, so I, I dibble and dabble in a little bit of um and the nonprofit side, um, where I work with a nonprofit organization whose, you know, major aim is to, to decrease maternal and infant mortality in vulnerable communities. Um, So this is why I love tapping into like the MCH um, coalition because it just so nicely um, coincides with what I like to do, um, you know, in my personal life and my professional life. And then for a personal side note, um, I'm the founder of Melanated Midwife, where I actually do um, prenatal and... um, prenatal and women's health education for black and brown women um, to really help them, you know, with with the prenatal education to take away kind of fears and frustrations, because as you know, black women are three to four times more likely to suffer, you know, uh, miscarriages, um, negative birth outcomes. And so this is to kind of put in place some of the things that they may come up against, um, you know, during pregnancy, and then also to help them navigate through the healthcare system with patient advocacy and education towards those things that are very common um, and black and brown moms during pregnancies that are that are actually killing our mamas. So that's in a nutshell <laughs> of what okay. I do here.
0: <laughs> One question I have for you is, do you get to catch babies?
1: I am not catching babies right now since my three little ones are at home for homeschool. Um, so hopefully when they return to school in August, then I can go back to catching babies.
0: <laughs> got it, got it. And how long have you been practicing?
1: As a nurse practitioner, I've since like 2006 and about the last five years as a midwife.
0: All right. So you've been there at the bedside plenty, plenty. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love to know a little bit more about what the Maternal Health Coalition's mission is all about and what it is that you do.
2: Sure. Claire, yeah. you are okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take that. Um, So we were founded right after a report came out of the um, Mary Amelia Center, which is a center at Tulane um, in the School of Public Health that really um, laid bare all of the racial disparities in birth outcomes in Louisiana and explicated or explained how the um, how those racial disparities are the result of structural racism and so when that report came out some of us at Newcomb Institute who work with the people at Mary Amelia Center we really thought we should collaborate and make sure that this report doesn't just sit on a shelf and that we are um, you know connecting with the people in New Orleans who've been doing really important work around these issues for Decades in some cases, um, and and make sure that we can figure out how to use this report as an advocacy tool and maybe a jumping off point for bigger collaborations between researchers and um, community organizations and healthcare providers. And so we convened a group of people um, who we thought were those doing the work in the community um, and came up with a, a few different recommendations um, for how we thought the city could help um you know minimize or or address those disparities, and out of that sort of we ended up doing a presentation to the city council, and we had to kind of like be like, Who are we? <laughs> you know, and we are we, we so we we basically became a coalition out of um out of that process and named ourselves as such and then. It's been a kind of a long process of developing um, more of a, a real structure. We're still not um, really an official organization from the eyes of the, you know, powers that be. We we're just a kind of a group of people who really care about this. We have a website now, though, so that makes us a you know more official. And we we certainly put our name on our. We make we as I think we're going to talk about we we've written a white paper. And that's just one of the many things we've done over the last few years. Um, where we are um, making a statement as a coalition about a particular issue, and so we do that kind of a thing a lot. Um, does that answer your question, or is there yeah, more? Yeah, it, do, it
0: <laughs> does. And um, I like the comment about you know you're just a small group of people, but isn't that the group of people that always gets shit done? The small group that you know, the agile, nimble. <laughs> yeah. And can, in, can, in, in fact, done. Excuse, excuse my expletive there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, and yeah, I also we're actually a about... fairly large group. Um oh.
0: Go ahead. How I'm many sorry. Yeah, you I was just going to say nation. we're we're
2: we're there's about 130 of us, but oh. there's a core group of people who are really, you know, super engaged and a lot of other people who care about it, but aren't able to devote as much time to it, you know, yeah. but our whole list is probably about 130 people.
0: All right. That's significant. That's great. I yeah. like hearing that there are that many individuals who want to come together and solve a big problem. Yeah. 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 Great. yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about the white paper that you recently published. And if I'm not wrong, it's titled in en- enhanced access to quality care, correct? Yes. That's correct. Okay. Um, do you, if you don't mind, I'd like to read some of the statistics that you published in that, in that sure. uh, paper. Cool. It'll yeah, kinda, cool. I think that these statistics kind of frame the conversation uh, pretty well. Louisiana has some of the worst neonatal and maternal mortality rates in the nation. Louisiana was ranked in the highest in maternal mortality of any state, according to America's Health Ranking 2020 assessment. Louisiana's rate of 25.2 per hundred thousand births was much higher than the natural national average of 17.4. According to the latest CDC maternal mortality report, according to the latest CDC report comparing infant infant mortality rates per state, Louisiana oh my goodness I'm sorry Louisiana ranks second to the highest, surpassed only by Mississippi. For Black Louisianans, infant mortality rates are two and a half times higher, and maternal mortality rates are four times higher than the rates for White Louisianans. Rates for severe maternal morbidities, which often have life-altering consequences, are also much higher in the Black population. So given those very dire and daunting statistics, I wonder if you could help our listeners understand what specific problems you're facing in terms of maternal health and what solutions you're looking for. Demetrius, do you want to take that?
1: Oh, sure. Like, I was like, we could be here all day. <laughs> listing out all of
0: the- <laughs> yeah. Let, let's pick out a few things. And and one thing that I would like to do is I know that this is a new conversation for a lot of my listeners. You know, they've listened to several of my mm-hmm. episodes and they they've kind of got the gist of what's going on. But when they hear terms like systemic racism, they may not know what that means. And okay. you hear you hear statistics like, you know, four times as many Black women in Louisiana will die from pregnancy-related conditions than white women. And it's not an obvious answer for many people as to why. So I'd like to address, Mm -hmm. I don't know,
1: who wants to dive in where? (laughs) I'll go, I'll be a taker. And I think um, even for me, I can speak like, from a personal and a professional level on this, you know, as myself being a, a black woman, um, you know, educated, went through the healthcare system, works in the healthcare st- system, um, but still experienced many of the same, um, adversities, um, you know, that, that my other, you know, black and Brown women experience. Um, and so it's doesn't matter like your educational level or your, you know, economic background, um, but like black and brown women are still facing these really high um, negative birth outcomes. So whether that's preterm labor, miscarriage, um, you know, infertility, things of that nature, you know, um, we are, you know, three to five times more likely to experience um, these negative birth outcomes. And so initially, um, you know, research was typically saying, oh, is it, you know, because of, you know, those are, you know, are not, as educated or maybe a lower, you know, maybe you don't have a really high income level or, you know, access to care, things of that nature. But when they look at it as a whole, um, you know, they were finding out that women, regardless of the background, were still experiencing the same negative outcomes. Um, and so what is it about my black skin that is keeping me or, you know, making me at such a higher risk? Um, and the only thing that it came down to was systemic racism. So systemic racism, racism across the board are these microaggressions, you know, that we kind of deal with every day, Um you know, this summer was kind of (laughs) <laughs> or this over this past year really um was just kind of really broadened i guess i think our enlightened america's eyes to see what was really there or what's you know kind of under the cover of what you know black america deals with every day um you know the instance with george you know floyd um all of the you know police brutality things like that that we even though it may not affect us in our own personal um home but then you always have like this could happen to any of us. Um, and, you know, that that blacks are usually not treated as fairly or brown women are not treated as fairly. And then in particular, in the hospital system is kind of where it shows up is that sometimes when we may voice concerns or maybe we're not able to really explain, you know, something is wrong, but you may be not able to explain what is what is exactly wrong. Um, you, you know, maybe not always taken as seriously or maybe, you know, maybe you're blowing something up out of proportion. And so the, um, the level of care or, you know, the intensity is not there where it should be. And so of course, then that can lead to, you know, really dire outcomes or really poor outcomes. Um, you know, just for instance, you know, preterm uh, preeclampsia and hemorrhage are like our biggest two um, factors that affect Black women in um, New Orleans. And so those are the things that are killing our moms within the immediately, immediately after birth to 42 days after birth. It's usually from preeclampsia or um, hemorrhage. And so we find that it's a lot of a bias within the healthcare system and so like when a lady would present and say you know maybe I've just had a baby and then you're having these signs and symptoms it should be a protocol that's immediately you know put into place where they go and they run through these procedures to try to decrease you know morbidity mortality and things of that nature but we're finding that with um with the black and brown community, maybe those things aren't getting addressed as quickly as they should. And of course, that can lead to really bad outcomes and even death um, for some for some moms. And so it's really a push. I love that the MCH coalition is really, you know, shedding light and, you know, and really getting behind, you know, black and brown birthing um persons to really, you know, shed light to see what is going on, how can we make it better, how can we address these implicit biases, um, you know, and these Im- implicit bias are typically bias that uh, that we may not even be aware of, and you can even have bias within your own culture, you know, um, and so typically they're influenced by maybe what we see on TV, maybe what society thinks, you know, is normal, and so most of the time we don't really, we're not aware you know, of these biases. So there are a lot of, sometimes it is very blatantly, like, you know, um, discriminate discrimination. Sometimes it is very uh, blatant, but a lot of times it people are unaware of it. So until you bring it to their attention or um, they may not realize that they're treating people differently. Um, so I think that the work that we're doing, you know, will shed a lot of light on this and then one of the other things that I think that we're going to tap into you know in just a little bit is just um the some of the thing that hinders healthcare. care um it's just the number you know the sheer number of providers you know that's available uh within the area so certainly um you know we have practitioners and um Uh, you know, people that can, you know, other providers um, that can see women within this area, but then sometimes we are held back and we're limited within our own, you know, healthcare system just because of what we typically call like our collaborative practice agreement. I think we'll kind of break that down here in just a little bit, but, um, you know, so we're kind of bound by like all of these things. um, And it's, it's like a vicious cycle <laughs> until we kind of yeah. break this cycle and, and really transform how we do healthcare. Um, and it, and it starts with, you know, people acknowledging it and, and doing a little bit um at a time so we can really break the status quo and do something different and save lives.
0: Yeah. Well, that was a really thorough answer. And I know that these are huge problems, but one of the, not simple, but direct solutions that we always talk about in the birth community is expanding midwifery care because midwives are able to take care of the you know bulk of women's population. And mm-hmm. most women are going to be normal, healthy, fine, and can get really, really high quality care from a midwife who may have more time to spend with the, the woman, um, yeah. more ability to focus on her Personal Mm -hmm. health needs, relationship needs, all of that. Whereas obstetricians who take care of most pregnant women in this country, they're the experts in the complications and they're the specialists. So you're in a state that you are allowed as a midwife to practice. Are you allowed to deliver? What are the parameters with practice for midwives?
1: Um, and so each state has its own, um, you know, set of rules and regulations. So you really have to check with each state. But with, here within Louisiana, as a we recognize um, two different types of midwives here. So we have what we call our certified professional midwives and our certified nurse midwives. And your certified professional midwives. Um, the difference is, is that they typically had a um, a degree and um, something other than nursing when they came to midwifery. So maybe it was a degree in business. And then, you know what, I really loved, you know, helping and I would love to help take care of babies and things like that. So they had a degree other than nursing when they came to midwifery. Um, so the path is a little bit differently, but we take the same exams and the same certifications to get your licensure. But it's just a little bit differently how they got there. And so a certified nurse midwife, you had a degree in nursing before you came back to midwifery. Um, And so we are... we are managed under two different systems. So the certified professional midwives, they're typically managed under the medical boards um, here, whereas your certified nurse midwives, we are um, managed and credentialed under the the Louisiana State Board of Nursing. Um, So our rules and regulations are a little bit different. Um, So as far as with the certified professional midwives, they are typically not um, covered by insurance, And it's more of a cash pay price, but they're they are more trained to do your home births and uh, work in birth centers. And your certified nurse midwives are typically going to work in birth centers and hospital settings. And so they do work really well together, you know, as a team, because if you have someone that's doing a home birth and maybe that needs to be transferred into a hospital setting, if you have that partnership with a certified nurse midwife, like you don't have to break that continuity of care. Like you can continue from one person to the other and go into the hospital for those settings. So that works really well um, for that. Um, And then as far as like your, go ahead. That was
0: such a great um, explanation of the difference between professional midwives and nurse midwives. And I I really appreciate your spelling it out like that. One thing that people often um, will assume is that a CNM, because they've gone through nursing school, are going to be better prepared. And I don't think that's always the case. I think that when you go through nursing school, you learn a lot about the system, the hospital system, and you learn a lot right. about the structures and how to chart. And you learn some basic background mm-hmm. information, but mm-hmm. you don't necessarily learn how to do your job. Mm-hmm. So you could come in with a bachelor's right. and I, I, something else and really, really provide value to your right.
1: team. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I and I think, like I said, you know, it's a place for for everybody because it's so many people that need help within the healthcare system. Like everybody has a place. Like we're not trying to steal patients, you know, from one to the other, but really to work together as a team, um, you know, for the benefit of of the patient. Um, and so I think. Like the, for CPMs, they're invaluable. I mean, they, they know home births like the back of their hand. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're, they they're awesome. They're and, and what they do, absolutely, and, you know, can work with like the bare minimum uh, essentials, you know, that are that are needed. Um, and, and you will have, you know, a great experience. Um, you know, with with having a, um, you know, a CPM. And I am an advocate, you know, for home births and for CPMs. And I think that we work really well um, together. We actually have like a little group of us, um, CPMs and CNMs that we're working together um, to try to do some partnerships within New Orleans. Um, So look, more more on that to come. But I think, you know, having a dynamic team or a diverse team, it just really, you know, opens the options for women in general. Um, it's just just the way the licensure is set up here. I wouldn't say that one is better than the other, but I do think that they both have a space within healthcare. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So a big focus of the white paper that um, we mentioned earlier was the collaborative practice agreement. And I'm wondering if you could uh, explain what that is and how mm-hmm. it impacts midwifery care and its accessibility to your to the women in your communities.
1: Okay, so what a collaborative practice agreement is, and so that's basically more for like your nurse, certified nurse midwives or your CNMs. Um, so the state of Louisiana deems that we have to have what we call a collaborative practice. So it's an agreement um, with a physician where, um, you know, we can still practice independently, but we have to have an agreement in place. So in case, you know, we need to risk somebody up, they're having complications, maybe they need a C-section or some type of surgery or something that falls out of the scope of midwifery that we have, you know, backup care um, for us. And so it's, so we can practice, you know, still in clinic and they don't have to be on site. We just have to be able to contact them, whether it's by phone, through some type of electronic communication. But you just have to be able to, you know, um, be accessible. They have to be accessible, you know, to you, but they don't have to practice on site with you. And so that's an agreement that's in place. And, it, you know, it's great to have somebody that you can collaborate with. And, um, you know, if you have somebody that that falls outside of your scope of practice that you can still partner with and kind of continue that care, um, you know, for for that client. So that works out really well. But the downside of that is that if you don't have that collaborative practice agreement in place, then you can't practice. Um, And so one of the things for me and I experienced this personally was that I had a physician who I was um, working with and we you know worked really well together he ran one office i ran another office um But he ended up, you know, doing something and he lost his license. But because he lost his license, like I had to stop practicing like midstream, like as soon as they pulled his license, I had to stop practicing because I didn't have another collaborative practice, a physician. And so like all of the patients that I had at that time frame who were up for birth, like they had to actually go in through the ER, um, just like they have never received care because they were Considered, um you know like because I wasn't I couldn't you know uh I didn't have hospital privileges anymore I couldn't you know wow. do anything I mean I had to wow. literally stop practicing the day he lost his license and so that was a gut punch for myself and as well as my patients I mean like I cried with so many of my wow. patients it was like well what am I gonna do who am I gonna see right? yeah oh my God. awful <sighs>
0: okay. That story just makes the whole point, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. So that's what I was like. You know, it was awful. So, you know, I don't think that it's fair, um, you know, that you go to school and you have a license and you practice within your scope but your license is still dependent upon somebody else. And if they do something with their license, even though it had nothing to do with you, (laughs) then you have to stop practicing, um, you know, until you get another collaborative physician in place. So it definitely, you know, hinders, um, you know, care, uh, you know, for clients and, you know, and it it hinders what you can do for yourself. Um, And so, you know, I don't know anybody who, Uh, you know, within, you know, my peers and colleagues that practice outside of their scope. I mean, we really work well with other physicians and really partner with them. And even if I have a client that is not, you know, um, that I may need to refer to somebody else. Like I don't not refer them because, Oh, I don't want to lose this client. (laughs) Like, no, I'm going to refer you because I know that this is outside of my scope. I can still, you know, assist you and whatever we need to, and we can work collaboratively as a team. But, um, you know, I don't think that it's a threat to, to healthcare, um, to even rid this collaborative practice. And since COVID, we have not had a collaborative, um, agreement in place they they've been able to do like emergency um, they had an emergency code where they um, they actually eliminated the collaborative practice and I think we have about another month before it's actually up but what we're fighting to do with the MCH coalition is to really push so we can read the collaborative practice agreement altogether
0: well I was just about to ask you what are you hoping will come from this white paper and it sounds like that's what it is to get rid of the collaborative practice agreement. So is it likely?
1: Um, I, I hope so. We, uh, you know, Claire and the team, they have done a lot of great research and even tapping into other states that don't have a collaborative practice agreement in place, and just kind of bringing those success stories to the forefront. Um, And then we, you know, we have other organizations such as the Louisiana um, Association of Nurse Practitioners. So I think we have like a big group that's really pushing um forward and standing behind it. So my hope is that it will go through and that they can go back and look over the last year and see that, you know, without this collaborative practice agreement in place, just how much more, um, you know, beneficial and how much more access to health care, um, you know, nurse practitioners, your midwives, um, all of your advanced practice nurses, just how much more um, we were able to, to access and to help people who wouldn't have necessarily had access to care, um, you know, had we not. Had they not, you know, done this emergency mandate to read the um, collaborative practice agreement?
0: I love that you mentioned success stories because one thing that I'm really mindful of is that it seems like the dominant conversation that we have about uh, poor maternal health care is is it's very slanted towards the catastrophes, and we're not mm-hmm. talking enough about normalizing beautiful births and healthy births right. uh, you know it's right. just we got to hear the success stories we got to hear them mm-hmm. so that people mm-hmm. know that most of what's going on in the birth community in the midwifery con- community um, is entirely successful and positive yes yes and people are scared and, they're scared absolutely. when all they hear are the dire outcomes and when people mm-hmm. are uninformed about what midwives are, what they can do. And, you know, we're still in this very, very strongly structured where doctors on top, all the rest of us Mm -hmm. who provide care are, you know, somewhere down the ladder. Mm -hmm. And that has to change. That just has to change. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes, it definitely needs to be more of a patient um, centered, you know, process and not this top down where the doctors are kind of at the top and even the patients end up being in the back somewhere like, oh, they're at the end of the line, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're way back there. (laughs) They're barely in in the room. (laughs) Like, where's the patient and what are they doing?
2: <laughs> so yes, we
1: definitely have to restructure how healthcare um is. And I mean, and I've seen some really beautiful practice with, you know, midwife and even OB collaboration. And so one, we have a sister hospital in Baton Rouge and that's where I actually did my training for um, midwifery um, was at one of our, our sister hospitals in Baton Rouge. And they had the most beautiful system where the midwives and the OBs worked together, you know, beautifully. They had 24, seven midwifery coverage. So everybody who came in already knew that they would, you know, had their babies caught by a midwife, unless they had some other complications. So, you know, that risked them out. So whether it's a preterm birth, they had a schedule, you know, C-section maybe, or, um, or you know, or maybe they, they, you know, this was their physician before and they wanted to keep with this, you know, their continuity of care, they wanted to continue with their OB, so they certainly have that option, but 90% of the women who came to this hospital, you know, knew that they were going to be have their babies caught by midwives. And so it was such a beautiful practice and they worked um, so well together. It was like this seamless um, flow between the two. And it was just such a beautiful partnership. And even like when, you know, I was learning how to catch babies, like it was residents, you know, like I was myself and another resident and we're learning together and learning these midwifery skills together. And so I just thought that it was really beautiful. Um, to bring in the, the different specialties where you can collaborate together and you learn from one another. Um, they have a, a program in uh, California that's like that. And so actually they have midwives on the staff in uh, in the medical residency program and vice yeah. versa. They have the, um, the physicians on staff in the... Um, midwifery programs and and they all work together for this um collaboration together and partner together so they learn from one another and they build these teams so it's not like this fight like oh this is my patient and i i'm right. gonna do this and so it's just a beautiful thing and i wish that more hospitals would adopt um that mindset and like realize that this does not have to be political we're, we're everybody got in healthcare. to to help other people and and do no harm um, to other people and that we don't have to, you know, fight over these women, but our job is to protect them um, and and to, you know, empower them so they can have the best birth outcomes for themselves and their families.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Claire, what else do you want listeners to know about the paper, um, about the coalition?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, the only thing I would emphasize is that um, I think our main argument in the white paper is that we we saw this temporary suspension of the collaborative practice agreement law as a result of a state of emergency. And what the MCH coalition is saying is that we've already been in a state of emergency in regard to maternal mortality and infant mortality in Louisiana for a long time. And so if if it's about suspending it as a result of being in a state of emergency, we should just be getting rid of it altogether because we're already in a state of emergency. And, and then also just that, um, you know, a lot of the research that we draw on in the white paper is about how midwives really improve birth outcomes in all of these different measures. Um, and there's all, there are many, many states. <clears throat> I think it's like 28, correct me if I'm wrong, Demetrius. I think there's 28 states that, um, that have full practice authority. So no collaborative practice agreement for, um, certified nurse midwives Mm -hmm. and they actually have largely better outcomes, right. Than, um, than states that do have it. And in fact, I think it's eight out of the 10 healthiest states have full practice authority for advanced practice registered nurses. So it's both, it's both something, the collaborative practice agreement from a, from a like a research perspective is something that doesn't have data behind it, right? There's not any there's no um indication that the CPA, the collaborative practice agreement, improves outcomes. Right. Um and, and in fact, there seems to be evidence to suggest that not having it would both in, increase potentially increase the um workforce of certified nurse midwives and nurse practitioners in the state, which for us would be really great because Mm -hmm. actually I think it's 95% of Louisiana is a health healthcare shortage area, Mm -hmm. um, healthcare professional shortage area. And so increasing the healthcare professional workforce would be great. Um, Right. And and it it also seems to be that um, that nurse midwives really have a great record when it comes to preventative, you know, preventing a lot of these mm-hmm. outcomes that we're trying to prevent. So just all of the things that Demetrius said um, and the, the ways in which the, the data really bears that out, I think.
0: Demetrius, is there anything else that you want listeners to know before we get into our rapid fire roundup questions?
1: The last thing that I do want to point out just about the CPAs, the collaborative practice agreements, is so not only, you know, do you have to where you, you know, if you don't have that collaborative practice agreement, it hinders the care, but it also, you know, hinders the care. So like, if you don't have that collaborative practice agreement in place, um, it hinders where you can do, you know, your hospital privileges and even like down to like malpractice insurance and things of that nature. So it's just more than, you know, it, it, hinders care all the way around the board, not just, oh, I got to stop practicing, but then now, you know, what about my malpractice insurance? I can't, you know, also have hospital privileges. So it just, it's like a domino effect um, with the collaborative practice. So definitely... I think that we've had a lot of success over this past year, you know, just from not having the uh, collaborative practice agreements in place with just the amount of sheer, you know, people that we've been able to reach and and, and give better access to care to. Um, And so hopefully all of this will kind of be pulled out along with the other states that are having better outcomes without the collaborative practice agreement in place. Who
0: is the deciding body? Who is the person that makes this decision about whether or not to rescind the CPA?
1: So right oh, now, like, well, oh, go ahead. Claire. Oh, you can go Demetrius. Demetrius. As I know, like Governor Bill Edwards, he, um, He's the one that put the uh, you know did the temporary suspension for right now, Um, and I know like we present things and have meetings to the city uh, to the city council, and I don't you know they disseminate and and disperse the information and kind of vote on it that way. So, Claire, you may be able to add a little bit more clarity um, to to this piece. Yeah, so actually, I just I just um, found this out fairly recently, but
2: there's a bill that. is going to be um, debated and hopefully passed in the Louisiana State Legislature this session. So this session, the Louisiana State Legislative Legislative session just started, um, and it's HB 495, and it's a bill to to give full practice authority to advanced registered nurses. And so, if the legislature passes that and then the governor signs it, then then that would be all All we would need, <laughs> but easier said than done. Um, of course, there are people, there are, um, you know, constituencies that are not in favor of this. And so, um, and I believe that there have been various efforts to do this in the past that have not succeeded. And so we, we think to what Demetrius was saying earlier, I think we are very hopeful this time around, because it it feels like we have a lot of support behind us, and um, there's there's a lot of evidence, right? And the fact that the that the agreement has been suspended, and there's been no negative outcomes as a result of that, um, really, I think, helps our case. Um, but it's still it's a it's a It's probably going to be a little bit of a battle, I think, but we'll see.
0: Listeners in your area could uh, help this along by making a one-minute phone call to state representatives, state legislature, the governor's office, or sending an email that says, uh, I want you to support rescinding the collaborative practice agreement, and I want you to support HB, what's the number? What's the bill number? 495. HB 495, I am a Mm -hmm. constituent in your area. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Done. Mm -hmm. And every one of those phone calls and emails gets logged, and it doesn't take that many of them to get the attention of your representative. You'd be surprised how few, like as few as a dozen people, calling in to say, Hey, I want you to support this bill. This is the reason why a Mm -hmm. simple one minute phone call
2: or email really, really counts. So, and, um, um, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say on that note, um, there are two websites that people could go to to sign up to be advocates um, around this bill and other things um, that relate to kind of the MCH coalition's mission. So the one that really pertains to the to the collaborative practice agreement is access to care LA.org. That's the Louisiana Association of Nurse Practitioners. Um, Website that they've created around this issue, and then there's also the New Orleans Maternal and Child Health Coalition's website, which is nolamch.org. dot org. And there's a place to sign up on that website too to be a supporter. And then you would basically get like action emails about this issue. And if you if you've signed up for the coalition's um, list, then you would get them about a number of other bills that are in the legislature right now too. Because um, there's actually this thing called the Mama Plus Health Policy Agenda, and that that has been developed by a number of organizations um, in New Orleans working on these issues, and it's a whole bunch of different bills that are really geared toward improving birth outcomes um, in the state, so that's a way people can get involved as well.
0: Great. And if listeners want to read the white paper, they can access that on the website?
2: Yes. Yep. It's okay. right on the homepage. Actually, you just had to slow, okay. scroll down. Mm-hmm. Okay, great.
0: All right. We're coming to the end of our time together, but I wanted to ask each of you a couple of rapid fire roundup questions. You ready? Yes. yes. <laughs> yep. Okay. Claire, I'm going to start with you. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the birth world?
2: Hmm. I am definitely optimistic. Should I give more of a response than that?
1: (laughs) No, that's all. Demetrius? Okay. I would say optimistic as well, because um, any other way looking at it is like doom and gloom. And so I definitely think there's room for change and and transformation within this healthcare system. So I'm optimistic.
0: Great. Otherwise, why go to work tomorrow, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
1: Okay.
0: All right. Demetrius, I'll start with you this time. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that.
1: Hmm. I would say nobody ever told me that um, doing this type of work would be really so fulfilling as it is, but definitely keep you on your toes with um, navigating through the healthcare system and how political it can be.
2: Yeah. Yeah, good answer.
0: Claire, how about you? Nobody ever told me that.
2: Well, I wanted to say, (laughs) because I had a little bit of time to think about it. um, I wanted to say nobody ever told me that a home birth would be um, as kind of lovely and awesome as it actually ended up Mm -hmm. being for me. Um mm-hmm. but actually people did tell me that and I just didn't believe them <laughs> and then I and then I ended up doing it for a wide variety of other reasons I won't go into and it was really great yes that
1: was good. that's that so awesome you had that experience
0: yeah again <laughs> we have to hear the success stories especially around you know births that aren't as common glad to hear that you had a positive experience okay my last question for each of you is this and Uh, Who wants to go first? I'll go. (laughs) Okay. Where do you stand in the world of motherhood?
1: My goodness, who? <laughs> Where do I stand? I, I stand on the on the side of mothers always. I think it is very important for us to listen to mothers and listen to what they're saying, um, because they are definitely a, a part of the solution um, to the problems you know that we have. So, if we want to really fix healthcare and really transform healthcare, then we need to listen to the people that are in it and how it affects them the most, and do better.
0: Nice, Claire. Your turn. Where do you stand in the world Mm -hmm. of motherhood?
2: Um, Well, I try my very best to stand on the side of reproductive justice, and so, like my a lot of my earlier work um, in my research was around adolescent pregnancy, and one of thing one of the things I really firmly believe is that nobody should really be in the business of telling a group of people, no matter how you define them whether or not they should reproduce and mm-hmm. so thinking about all of the stigma and um, difficulties and policies that have been enacted in the name of uh, you know the supposed problematic nature of teen pregnancy I learning is so much about that I'm really um, stand on the side of everybody should have the ability and the right and the means and the support to, to make the whatever reproductive decision is best for them. So whether that's motherhood or not. Right. Um, Right.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, this has been a really great conversation. And I think we each said a time or two that we could talk about this all day. I agree (laughs) we could, but I appreciate both of you coming on and talking to us about the coalition and about the white paper and explaining more about how well midwifery works in the world thank you thank you thank you awesome it's been a pleasure good well we will talk again down the road
1: yes sounds like a plan sounds good right bye-bye bye-bye
0: everybody that's it for this week thanks to our guests Demetra Smith and Claire Daniel and be sure and visit their website to learn more about their work you can learn more about me at jeanfalkner.com you can email me jean at jean Faulkner, tweet me at jeanfalkner and find Pregnancy Parenting and Politics on Instagram and Facebook Pregnancy Parenting and Pol- Politics is produced by Recluse Records talk to you again soon bye